Hey, Dan, a huge thank you for spending time with us this evening. Hi, Sean. Nice to be with you. Really appreciate it. What got you interested in Savile in the first place? Um, it's a long story, really. I went to see an episode of Jim Will Fix It being filmed when I was about nine, 1980, at a TV theatre in Shepherd's Bush. I didn't meet the man. I was in the audience. I went with my mother and my best friend. It was at a time that Savile was probably at the height of his celebrity and his fame. Um, and I just had a, I just found the whole experience really weird. I found him really cold and really, really odd. And I think it would have remained just a sort of strange reaction to an odd guy had it not been for the fact of stumbling across a copy of his autobiography as it happens, which I picked up probably in my mid-teens, I would have thought. And I read that and I just thought, God, this is so bizarre. Um, it's such an odd account. Um, and then really my interest was pricked and I think I, you know, started sort of collecting stuff on him or, you know, when I found an article about him, I sort of keep it. And then when I became a journalist in my, my 20s, that, that gathered pace um, until... You know, I sort of joked then that I had a thing called the Savile Dossier. And what I, you know, what was in that Savile Dossier by the first time I went to interview him in 2004 was, you know, his autobiography, a very odd book he wrote called God Will Fix It, in which he purports to outline his views on faith. But he, he sort of inadvertently gives a window into his soul in some senses in that. And then a lot of very interesting articles that have been written over the years. And what I felt was here was a guy who was, as I describe him, a heat seeking missile for publicity. And yet nobody really knew who he was. And yet he had this, he mixed in these extraordinary circles and seemingly had this incredible level of influence. Um, and I thought that was really bizarre. You know, this guy who was ostensibly a sort of clown like figure. Um, I thought it was very interesting that, that nobody knew who he was and nobody seemed to comment on the fact he'd penetrated these extraordinary levels of society and circles of power. So how did you approach him then to get him to be so, spend so much time with you if you had these suspicions? Well, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I'd heard the rumours at that stage. I think any kid growing up in the 70s and 80s would have heard those rumours. I mean, everybody pretty much had. They were, you know, sort of schoolyard gossip. Um, and, you know, while I asked him about those rumours every time, there was plenty of other aspects of his of his life and times. And, and I've just, you know, as I've just spoken about, you know, the, the levels of influence and power he had. Um, I was I was sent to interview him by an editor of a magazine I was working for in 2004. He he happened to come from Scarborough and was a big sort of pro Jimmy Savile guy, you know, like a lot of people were, in fairness. And um, I told him that I'd had a lot of information about him um, and had been sort of studying him in a, in a sort of unofficial way for, for quite some time. I was sent to interview him in Leeds. I made contact with him. I can't remember how I got his number. I left a, a message on his answer phone. He phoned me back. The stipulation for the interview at his flat in Leeds was a box of cigars, which I purchased. The interview was meant to last an hour or two. It started in the late morning and it finished well after dark. Um, and we covered an extraordinary amount of ground in that first interview, including, you know, why these rumours about him were so persistent. And we started at the very beginning. That's, you know, the, the BBC drama was, was accurate in that sense that we, the first question I asked him was, tell me about your childhood. And his answer was, I didn't have a childhood. Um, and we went from there, really. And that interview got quite a lot of pickup in the national newspapers. People commented on it on, on it because of some of the stuff he said and some of the, the claims that he made. Uh, and then I was commissioned to do another interview with him for another magazine a couple of years later, and then another one. And then by that stage, you know, I think, you know, the first one was in 2004. So he was, I think, 77 or something like that. He was in his dotage as a celebrity. He was he was a, a relic, really, of a, of a bygone age. He wasn't somebody who was 
in the headlines in the news so i think you know to have multiple multi-page features published on him in in quite cool magazines was something that appealed to his vanity and his ego and you know more commissions followed off the back of that first one and i stayed with him at his flats and in various places and met with him in everywhere from the Athenaeum Club in London to the QE2 to, you know, sort of transport cafes. And these interviews lasted for days at a time. And as we went further into this process, I said to him, I want to write a book about him. And he was very resistant at first. He wanted to control his narrative. He wanted to, he talked about somebody, a reporter trying to write an unauthorised biography of him in the 70s. And that's what prompted him to, in his words, write out longhand in a series of notebooks, the book that became As It Happens, which is definitely in his hand and in his voice. So that was that was the sort of the arc, I suppose, of the story. And, and even when those magazine commissions had finished, I just felt that I'd come so far and I hadn't really got to where I wanted to go to. And I didn't get to where I wanted to get to by the time of his death. Um, so I continued and... Um, yeah, and then the result is the is the book. Well, viewers, huge thank you for the slew of questions that are coming already. We're going to go over some of the story first, though, in the order that it happened, and then we'll bring in the questions when we get through the main points of the story. So you said he said he had no childhood, and I've found it extremely difficult to find out about his relationships with his siblings, for example. There's a bit about his mother out there. What did you find about his childhood? Well, he... He had. He was from a poor working class family in Leeds. You know, he was born in 1926. Uh, he was the youngest of seven children. He described himself as a not again child. I think he was unplanned. He was from a Roman Catholic family. His his father worked in a railway station. Uh, his mother was a housewife. Was was also somebody who was active in the community. You know, you know they were both active in the community. I believe. Um, but the the the. The picture he painted was really of a of a child who was surrounded by adults who was seen and not heard. He described himself as having wide, eyes sort of wide open and large ears. He listened to everything. He took it in. Didn't say much. He was, as I said, he was surrounded by adults. He was the youngest of seven. You know, some of his siblings, I think, had, had left home by the time he was a child. And he described it as a fairly Spartan, you know, unloving unloved child you know who was who found his you know found sort of i suppose emotional closeness in the old people's home that was run by an order of nuns opposite the house or near where the house where he grew up in and he used to go in there and the nuns used to sort of take him in to see the old people and he was even sort of taken in to see them after they passed away to say his goodbyes and so it was a you know i i it's difficult to say. I mean, he was very evasive when talking about his father. He wouldn't even confirm when his father had died. It was always sort of, how the hell should I know? It's like, well, you know, he was your father. Um, his mother, obviously, he he idolised and adored. Um, and I don't think, from what he told me, that there was a lot of that adoration or love coming back in his direction, which I think is why he he wanted to sort of claim her as his own in later life. Wow, you've raised a few points there then. So do you think that the root cause of his fascination with death and dead people is from what you just described with the nuns, showing him the people who passed away as I think a child? He was I think he was definitely um, exposed to the idea of death very early. Obviously, he, he talks about the accident he had as a child where he was basically given the last rites, according to him, and his mother went to uh, Leeds Cathedral and prayed to a a nun who was later beatified or, and, you know, he had this miracle recovery from this injury that according to his mother or one of his sisters, I can't remember which, who I think it was his mother who said that he basically injured something in his neck, which meant that he had these sort of fits and couldn't close his eyes. He had this sort of staring child. He couldn't sleep to all intents and purposes for, for a year. And then was according to, to, to Savile himself was so seriously ill that he was he was read the last rites. So, you know, these these brushes with death are a are a a, a common theme 
throughout the early part of his life, including, you know, the time he supposedly spent as a Bevan boy miner when he was blown up or, or, or was, you know, injured in an explosion down a mine. And again, you know, sort of had a very sort of close brush with his own mortality. But I think he was definitely fixated with with death throughout his life. And I think there's a there's a good argument that seeing those old people laid out, um, you know, in the old old people's home as a young child, you know, I, I can only imagine that can only have had a fairly profound effect on him. Do you know what caused the accident that injured his neck, that made his eyes not able to close? I think he fell out of a pram. I think that was the um, the, uh, the the reason was given if memory serves. Okay, so you've touched on something else there. In The Reckoning, you know, his mum goes into the confessional in that dramatised scene and says that she didn't love him. Do you think that's accurate, that that was, that was really paralleled in his life? He was craving his mother's attention and love? I think there's a, there's a good argument. I mean, it's very difficult to say. You know, she, she died in the, in the early 1970s. Um, but yeah, I think that the people I spoke to who, in, you know, who experienced Savile with his mother, you know, she was constantly sort of scolding him constantly. He was constantly having to prove himself to her. Even even at a point where he was providing for her, whether buying her a flat or, you know, taking her out or showering her with the sort of gifts that his wealth um, allowed him to do, he was constantly having to to prove himself to her. Which does suggest that, you know, I mean, she was quite an old, you know, she was quite old when she had her seventh child. She was well into her forties, which in 1926, I imagine, you know, it, it, it was possibly harder than it would be today. And you know, they were living with, you know, a, a work on a, on a small income. You know, his father was, was, you know, was, I think, sort of signed off sick for quite a long time. So I don't think there was sort of an awful lot of money coming in. So I think things were hard. What about his relationship with his siblings? There were six of them, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, again, he was very evasive about that. I mean, I think the really interesting relationship with his two brothers, you know, Johnny, who was a cause of great discomfort to him. Johnny was sacked from his job at a at a um, a psychiatric hospital in London in 1981 for sexually molesting a patient. Um, and Vince, his older brother, sort of, I think he worked in the Navy for a long time, or he was in the Navy for a long time, and then sort of came out and tried to reinvent himself as a sort of Jimmy Savile Mark II, but operating in Wales and I think that you know and I think Johnny his older brother as well also you know liked to to dine out on his younger brother's fame and I think that was something that was uncomfortable to Savile particularly when you know Johnny was sacked from his job for for what he did um and you know Vince I, I you know Difficult to say. I mean, he was definitely an eccentric character. And I spoke to people in and around Cardiff where he lived in, you know, in latter life. And he'd sort of walk around in outlandish costumes and outfits and sometimes had a snake around his neck. And, you know, again, this sort of heat-seeking missile approach to publicity. It's like, you know, did this, was this apparent in all of them? Or did they see that what their little brother was able to do with, with fame and what came with it? How did World War influence his character development? Uh, interesting. I mean, he was sent to work as a Bevan boy. Um, he was sent away from home. He insisted that he wanted to work on his own at the corner of a tunnel. He didn't really want to work with others. He spent his time, according to him, in solitude, in a sort of in a nook in the corner of a of a of a track carrying coal from the coal face to the surface and he was he worked on that corner putting the 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 wagons back on the track when they came off and he he talks about you know that time spending a lot of it alone and reading and you know finding out about himself and educating himself by by candlelight in what he described as the sort of stygian gloom um and but he also discovered the power of oddness as he described it you know one day when he arrived late for his shift you know he didn't have time to change and he was still in his 
his sort of Sunday best suit, presumably from an evening out or whatever. And and he went down the pit in the in the lift in his suit, and all the other miners were looking at him. And you know, I think the mining community were quite a suspicious bunch. They 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 sort of considered they they did they looked sort of harshly on oddballs like him. And then he he folded his suit up during his shift and then came out spotless. And he said that the effect that that had on his fellow miners really sort of lit this light bulb in his mind about what oddness could mean and what being different could mean. And actually the power, I think, you know, that it, that it had over people and the fact that he could keep people off balance. They didn't quite know who he was or what he was or what he was about. How did he get introduced to music and DJing? Well, he had a friend who um, he he had a friend who who basically set up a record dance, and um, I know he had a friend, sorry, who had who who basically set up a, an amplified gramophone, and I think Savile saw it as a money making device to be able to rather than you know in those days in the late forties and early fifties, you know, playing records. In a, in a dance hall or a nightclub was unheard of. You know, it was all live bands and that's what people danced to. But this friend had come up with this equipment to amplify a gramophone. He saw, I think, the money-making potential in that and put on a record dance. And again, then he realised that very quickly, and he talked about this in, in his books and he talked about it to me, about the power he had over people. He could make them dance. He could make them move fast. He could make them move slow, literally by putting different records on. And again, it was another sort of staging post in the development of this very strange persona who was very conscious of the power that he wielded over other people and, as he described it, the power of oddness. So there was a scene in The Reckoning where they had his bouncers beat a guy up and when he was talking to Louis Thoreau, he mentioned you know, taking people into the basement so was he into gangsterism as well? Well, I think he was a, you know, I mean, I, I spoke to some proper gangsters in Manchester and Leeds who sort of scoffed at, at his gangster credentials, but certainly he delighted in his reputation as a hard man in those days. And as he said, he he did boast to, to Louis Theroux and he, he boasted to me on many occasions and he, he boasted in, in other outlets, whether it be his books or his publications, you know, and, and this was something that, came out in a very peculiar series of stories in The Sun, I think it was, in 1982, just as the um, Stoke Mandeville was about to be opened, you know, the, the spinal injuries unit that he'd raised money for and become the sort of focus of his national appeal. There was this really strange series of stories about this hard man, you know, persona, this this other side of Jimmy Savile, this guy who who did tie up troublemakers in the in the basements of his dance halls who did get his bouncers to rough them up who did sort of rule with a rod of iron and he talked about having you know he talked about having sonder commandos you know guys that worked in the concentration camps during second world war you know working as his bouncers these he he seemed to you know surround he he, he liked to create this aura of menace and as somebody who was not to be messed with and that was something he took all the way through his life. And he, you know, the, the origin story of that really are is his are the days that he spent as a sort of dance hall impresario and somebody who changed the face of of night nighttime culture really in Great Britain. So do you think that he went into wrestling to become more menacing? Yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean he had a friendship with a guy called Bill Benny who was a, um, a sort of famous wrestler in the in the 50s, huge sort of hulking guy who who was a big figure in the sort of Manchester clubland at that time, was also a professional wrestler. You know, I think that the first time was probably, you know, a publicity stunt that, you know, he, he was to go in the ring as a publicity stunt. But I think it definitely gilded that image as a guy who was physically strong, who could look after himself, he was not to be messed with, yeah. And I think that even though his record was was pretty awful, um, and he did get beaten an awful lot, I don't think it did any harm to that persona that he was trying to to cultivate. How did he get discovered by Radio Luxembourg? 
he got discovered by Radio Luxembourg because his dance halls were doing so well. He'd become this huge star within Mecca. Mecca ran dance halls all across the country. And Jimmy Savile was their shining light. He was the guy who'd who'd who pioneered these record dances, you know, effectively what we now know as DJs. Um, you know, he 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 had to go up against the musicians union in the early days to play records in between, you know, stints by live bands. But his his star had risen within Mecca. And I think that he was seen as somebody who attracted a crowd of teenagers. And at a time when, you know, rock and roll music was was sort of erupting across the landscape, who better than the guy playing these records in his dance halls to, you know, adoring teenage fans um, to go to, to front a show called the Teen and 20 Disc Club, which was, which was the big show that sort of broke him on Radio Luxembourg and then led into the BBC. So was his claim that he was the first to do this accurate, being a, a, desk, a disc jockey on the turntables? Uh, I think, I think there would be others who would definitely um, counter that. But I think, he, I think he has a definite claim to be the person who popularised this form of, you know, dancing to, to recorded music rather than... And also, you know, he was one of the first, you know, high-profile dance hall figures to be you know using two twin turntables you know from you know cutting from one to the other so he definitely has a place in that in that history of of djs um whether he was the first or not it's very difficult to say so he was definitely a pioneer when did he start to commit charitable acts and what would you think really motivated him well i think his you know he would argue that his charitable, charitable acts began early on in life, you know, led by the example of his parents, who, as I said, were active in the local church and in the local community. Um, I think that really it started to, you know, there were small scale fundraisers at his dance halls, um, but it really started to gather momentum with the I'm Backing Britain campaign, which was under Harold Wilson. And I think he was able to sort of codify his involvement with Lee's General Infirmary and, you know, make that a, a, a public part of the I'm Back in Britain campaign. And then we start to see his emergence as somebody who's not just um, a DJ, not just a, a, a dancehall impresario and a radio disc jockey, but somebody who's seen beyond those confines as, you know, working for charity you know giving his time and as we know you know the the places where he gave him to gave gave his time also afforded him um the opportunities to offend how did he, did he establish such a close relationship with leeds police well that goes back to the to the dance hall days you know he he claimed in his book i mean this is really interesting that he claimed in his book that the police once came round to his flat, and we're probably talking in the we're definitely talking in the sixties. But his his connection with the police in Leeds goes back well before that. To talk to him about a runaway girl that he claims in his book that he did, you know, give shelter to in his house for a long time, and was berated by the police for, you know, sheltering this girl, and basically sent this female police officer away with a flea in her ear, saying. You know, if you take me down, I'll take the rest of the police station, you know, rest of your police station down, you know, with you. Um, he he had close relationships with the police in Manchester. I think that, you know, in those days, you know, things were probably quite lively on the streets at times. Um, as a, a, a prominent local dance hall manager, you know, if there were fights or if there were, you know, the police would have probably been in and out of his his premises. So he cultivated them from very early on. And what's really interesting is that he was very overt about, you know, even he talked to me about, you know, he talked to me about the police, you know, coming in and asking him about, you know, why have you got all these underage girls in your, in your dance hall? And his reply, which was typical was, you know, would you rather your daughter was, in this dance hall with me or out there with all those scumbags and slags in his own words. Um, so 
you know, he had this way of almost putting his putting his guilt right under the noses of the local police, you know, whether it be in Manchester, whether it be in Leeds, whether it be in North Yorkshire, um, you know, and this goes right the way through to him being interviewed by Surrey police in 2008 under caution at Stoke Mandeville at the end of a two-year investigation by Surrey police. He completely dictated where that interview took place. And after they first approached him or contacted him to tell him they wanted to interview him under caution. It was some months before he got back to them. And it wasn't him who got back to them. It was a, an inspector at West Yorkshire Police who got back to, to the Surrey Police on Jimmy Savile's behalf and, you know, mentioned that he gets all these sorts of letters. You know, again, it's almost like the, the, the words were, the, the words came out of Savile's mouth and were articulated by this West Yorkshire police inspector when talking to the Surrey police about arranging an interview under caution um, at the end of a two-year investigation. And that interview ended up taking place at Stoke Mandeville. So he dictated the terms of that interview, dictated the timing of that interview, and he dictated the venue of that interview. Yeah, one of the most surprising and shocking stories of his um, interactions with the police, I think it was in your book, actually, was whereby he, a policeman approached his vehicle he was in his roles with a, a young-looking female, and he said, "What are you doing, Jimmy?" And he said, "Waiting f- until midnight for when she turns 16," and then basically tells him to f off, or or he's going to have his job pulled. Um, paraphrasing, yeah. but is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean that's 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 exactly accurate. Yeah, he was in a lay-by near Roundhay Golf Club, you know, and he said. It was quarter to 12 at night and he said, I'm waiting for midnight for her to turn 16. I mean, this was sort of, he put it out there all the time. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, he put it out there in his newspaper columns. He put it out there in his book, his books. He put it out there in the interviews he did with me uh, and others. And it was a high wire act that he had correctly, as it turns out, calculated um, would ensure that he wasn't caught you know he it was almost like if you think from his point of view he's sort of putting it all out there why why would he i'm sure that his defense would be why on earth would i be saying all this stuff if i was guilty why would i be leaving this breadcrumb trail of clues if i was guilty and you know it was all in it was all in plain sight and it was all and he 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 wrote about stuff in his newspaper columns he wrote about picking up girls on the seafront at Scarborough. He talked about, you know, doing an event for charity in Otley in his, in Yorkshire, whereby he insisted, you know, that he was going to camp overnight on a local hillside. And his only condition was that a group of young girls would accompany him as his bodyguards. And he wrote about this in his book. And then I interviewed one of the, I tracked down one of the, the women, or, you know, who, who was a teenager at that time, who was in one of those tents, and her account uh, of that evening differs markedly from what Jimmy Savile wrote in his autobiography and in his newspaper columns and so on and so forth. I think that he felt if he could get his side out of the story and get it out in print, um, then if he could, he could get it out first, then it would be a big insurance policy for him. So my dad played a bit part in The Reckoning, and before it was broadcast, he said that one of the most disturbing scenes he watched was in Scarborough when Savile and Jack and Ellie, the parents, hand over the girl and you know the arms around the girl, and he got the parents' permission to walk away. How did he establish this relationship with Jack and Ellie, and were they co-conspirators in crimes? Yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of a lot of smoke around Peter Giaconelli's name. I mean, they were two very prominent people in Scarborough. He was the local ice cream magnate, you know, who sort of ran the seafront, along with um, James Corrigan, who ran the you know ran the fairground and the amusements. But Giaconelli was a big figure. He was a mayor, former mayor of Scarborough. So, you know, Savile gravitated towards people in power and people in influence. I mean, obviously, Giaconelli would have been a bit part player for him, but in, in you know, one of the many locales that he bounced between, and Savile did live this nomadic lifestyle. He never stayed anywhere for long, which I think is another reason that he evaded um, 
you know, he evaded sort of exposure and capture for so long. And, you know, Giaconelli was one of the sort of coterie or the, you know, the, 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 the groups of acolytes in, in Scarborough. There is def- definitely a very, very strong suggestion that they were part of a paedophile ring in, in North Yorkshire. Um, yeah. So we did have co-conspirators along the way because we saw early on in the reckoning his sidekick um, is involved in stuff. And then when the sidekick gets apprehended, Savile distanced himself from him. Was that accurate? Yeah, I mean, Ray Terrett um, was, you know, he described himself to me as Savile's mini-me. You know, he, he, Savile was his sort of mentor. They lived together in what was called the Black Pad, you know, and that was faithfully recreated in in the Reckoning. You know, the, all the walls were painted black. He, Terrett, um, worked for Savile in the dance halls. Uh, and then, you know, I think Savile was annoyed with him because he sort of wanted to go off and do his own thing and wanted to get out from underneath, um, so, you know, wanted to get out from Savile's shadow and went off and did his own thing. And then he was, you know, charged with and convicted of, of you know, sexual abuse or, you know, underage sex. And I think, again, that was like Johnny Savile. It's like it 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 comes too, it, too close to home for um, for Jimmy Savile. So, yeah, I mean, Ray Terrett was a, a guy who talked like Jimmy Savile. It was bizarre, even all those years removed from the time that they spent together. But, you know, he talked about Savile teaching him how to DJ. They lived together. He was Savile's chauffeur. He was Savile's gopher. They had girls round to the flat. And, you know, Terrett, when I interviewed him, had already served time for underage, you know, underage sex crimes. So was not surprisingly um, circumspect about that. But I pressed him on it. And he was like, you know, well, what happened? You know, what, what, why did these girls come round? How did these, you know, with what regularity? And it was all sort of, I think his term was something like tea and loveliness or something like that, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, they, he, he had, I think that Savile, and I, you know, I think Mark Williams Thomas said this, and I think he's probably correct, was somebody who largely offended alone. But there are other, there are other um, testimonies that, that run counter to that. I mean, Savile's own nephew, Guy Marsden, talked about running away from Leeds in his teens and ending up at Euston Station, which was a sort of, or King's Cross Station, I can't remember which, which was a notorious sort of pickup joint for waves, you know, pickup place for waves and strays. And there were plenty around that part of London in those days. And him and his friends were, were taken away to a strange house and put up by a strange guy. And then out of nowhere, in, a, in an era before mobile phones and email and the internet, um, Jimmy Savile turns up at this house and takes them and puts them up in another flat. And according to Guy, you know, took them to parties which were frequented only by adult men and children. And, you know, according to Guy, they were there to, I suppose, placate the younger children who were scared. So, you know, the fact that he was taking them to parties, the fact that the, of Ray Terrett, the fact of... um you know, these, these these other instances that you've mentioned suggest that there were people along the way who, I mean, there they, they have to have been people along the way who, and there were people on the way who knew what he was about um, and, and witnessed it. So do you think that Savile played a role as some kind of middleman procurer then? Well, according to Guy Marsden, um, whether it's a procurer, whether it's, whether it's a sort of contact with that ring. I mean, you know, he was on the, you know, on the re- in the records of the, the Scotland Yard paedophile unit from 1964, you know, going to a house in London in where, you know, runaways, basically a brothel, where runaways from Duncroft School, which, you know, comes back into the story in a very big way um, in, in later years. Duncroft School, as you know, Sean was a, a sort of um, quasi sort of 
Borstal, I suppose, but a sort of high-end Borstal for, for troubled girls in Surrey. And Savile was a regular visit visitor there over many years and, and drove girls off the grounds in his car and and molested those girls. And that connection, you know, in that that piece of intelligence in Scotland Yard's, you know, paedophile records dates back to 1964 and connects him with Duncroft. And, you know, if he's going to a house that's operating as a brothel, it suggests, you know, there are other people there who witnessed him there and saw him there, you know, whether they were offending with him or not, or offending individually, who knows. So if records go back to the 60s, how on earth did he get access later on to the highest levels of the royal family and the politicians? Very good question. I mean, there are people that come out of this in credit, with some credit. I think, um, you know, in the in the reckoning, you see Margaret Thatcher's, you know, one of the civil servants or the cabinet secretary who is connected with the honours system, really doesn't want him to be knighted, really objects to that over the whole course of her premiership. Um, he claimed that his his in with the royal family came through Louis Mountbatten, who was Prince Charles' uncle, favourite uncle, and very much a sort of eminence grease behind the throne, a powerful figure within the royal family. And that connection came through the Royal Marines, according to Savile. He was able to um, impress upon Mountbatten that he was a sort of no-nonsense, can-do sort of guy. And I think that impressed Mountbatten, who then, you know, I think probably made the introductions to Prince Charles. And, you know, he became Prince Charles's mentor, in the words of his wife, or his first wife. Um, you know, she described him in the Squidgy Gate tape transcripts as his kind of mentor. And there's no doubt about it that he was a sort of unofficial advisor on matters of health. You know, through the 80s, he became extraordinarily prominent through his, you know, his spearheading the campaign that that saw the rebuilding of the National Spinal Injuries Unit at, at um, Stoke Mandeville, his work at Broadmoor, um, or his connection with Broadmoor, you know, his connection with Leeds General Infirmary. He was seen... Um, you know, as somebody who could apply a common touch, I think, to the royal family, who could speak plainly to, uh, you know, the heir, the heir to the throne, who was probably fated and and fussed over by everybody, and, and Savile spoke very plainly to him and wasn't afraid of upbraiding him and wasn't a, a, afraid of, you know, talking to him in a way probably that Prince Charles, as he was then, wasn't used to. And I think probably people around him saw some value in that. And, you know, to the extent that he was close with, became close with the Duke of Duke of Edinburgh as well. Um, and, yeah, that relationship with Prince Charles really, really grew. I mean, in the, in the, you know, the auction that followed his death of his, of his, you know, his belongings and his artefacts, there were umpteen Christmas cards, gifts, messages from Charles, you know, one that said, I don't think the nation will ever understand what you've done for it. Um, and, you know, the relationship with politicians, you know, went from the late 60s all the way through and really sort of reached its zenith with Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, you know, he, he, he sort of courted before she became prime minister, which is, which is sort of... Um, dramatized in the reckoning he he got her onto jim will fix it um he was sort of weaving his you know weaving his way into that orbit um and then she came to power on a raft of, of spending cuts and that coincided with a, a very bad winter and the roofs of the of the national you know the, the huts these sort of second world war mizzen huts which housed the, the spinal injuries unit at that time they'd all caved in and this was a national embarrassment, you know, and Thatcher wasn't going to stump up the money to rebuild it. And she, um, Savile saw an opportunity, said, I'll do it, stepped in. The, the relationship with Thatcher accelerated and deepened. And there's one 
there's one communication that's been sort of redacted or or, or removed from the records or or hidden and i i maintain that is the communication in which prime minister margaret thatcher guaranteed jimmy savile a knighthood if he succeeded in rebuilding um the spinal injury center at stoke mandeville Wow. Okay. We've got 20 minutes left. I'm going to go for another five minutes and then I'm going to stop to give you the viewer questions because we've got tons of them have piled up. Just going to read something from our news uh, story. At one stage, police considered that Savile could have been involved in the disappearance and murder of women in Yorkshire before Sutcliffe was found and convicted. A dentist even made a cast of Savile's teeth in order to check against bite marks found on the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper's victims. What do you make of that? Well, one of the victims was found outside or in the park outside his flat in Roundhay Park. He'd only recently moved in. Um, There was a dentist in London uh, who was asked to make this cast of his teeth because two of the victims had been found with bite marks. Um, And, you know, the, the, the dentist is no longer with us, but there was somebody who was close to him who said that it was common knowledge that Savile, you know, was a you know, was a regular in Chapel Town, in the red light area of Chapel Town and, you know, consorted with prostitutes. So, you know, he was on the records. He was within the, you know, he, he did also offer to, you know, at one point in the manhunt, he did offer to act as an intermediary between the police and uh, the Ripper before he, because there were a lot of, you know, hoax calls and there was a lot of leads and, you know, men all over Yorkshire were interviewed. I don't think the fact that he was interviewed is necessarily, um, you know, that remarkable. Although I think it's, I think it is very significant that they took it seriously enough to get a cast made of his teeth. What about his relationship with the Ripper when he was at Broadmoor? Well, his relationship with Peter Sutcliffe began at Parkhurst before he was even moved to Broadmoor. You know, Savile liked to go into these places, you know, he, he, he liked to go into Broadmoor, he liked to go into Rampton, he liked to go into high security um, environments. And, you know, he talked about encountering Sutcliffe at Parkhurst before he was even moved to Broadmoor. And, you know, at Broadmoor, it was, again, it was part of this, this aura of the hard man image. You know, he was a guy who was running an institution that held... Ronnie Cray and held Peter Sutcliffe and held some of the most dangerous people in society or, or formerly in society. Um, you know, he, he, he duped Frank Bruno, who was sort of mentally very fragile at that time and recovering from a, a sort of psychiatric episode and, and, and sort of coerced him into coming to visit him at Broadmoor. And, and he was photographed with Peter Sutcliffe. He described Peter Sutcliffe to me as, as good as gold which I thought was sort of, you know, remarkable given, um, given his, uh, his, his, his offending and his, his catalogue of murders. Um, you know, I think that he, I don't know, I have theories about his, his involvement with these psychiatric institutions, how much of it was him trying to understand how these people were treated and identified in order to be able to um, avoid detection himself um how much of it was you know that sort of thrill that that sick thrill that he had all the way through his life of getting so close to the flame whether it be his own offending which which took place in in plain sight and it took place in a way that he was happy and comfortable to write about it and put it all out there um you know it's very interesting that he gravitated towards those sorts of institutions very very instructive i think do you think he was a bit in awe of Sutcliffe because Sutcliffe went further than he could possibly go? I don't know. I mean, that's that's impossible to say. I mean, I I did ask him why he, you know, why he, why he was so fascinated by these people, and he he described it as a sort of storm coming over their brains, and you know, them being sort of beset by this storm that scrambles their senses and then they do something of which they're not responsible. Ultimately, it's their sickness that's, that's responsible. And that might be well be a, a psychiatric um, appraisal of the situation, but 
you know how much of how much of that was actually applied to himself you know in his in his book god will fix it he talks about you know he was constantly weighing up the you know the 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 debit and credit side of his life you know he he was fully aware of the extent of his offending he was fully aware that it would all come down after his death he was fully aware that you know once he was in his grave at some point he would be exposed but he liked to offset that against you know what he described as going to the pearly gates and and basically un, you know unfolding this huge ledger of of good acts you know charitable acts things that he'd done for the greater good and he always said that you know if St Peter didn't admit him then he would break his fingers um, which again just sort of comes back to that that sort of hard man dance hall night nightclub you know impresario that we discussed earlier well he was born on halloween and it was halloween yesterday and some of the viewers are interested in the the supernatural side of this theories about savile being a wizard about savile being into satanism and also about savile being a Freemason or having Masonic connections. Was there any veracity to any of that? I don't know about being a wizard or or, or, or any of that. I was I was interested in his Masonic connections. Um, I didn't find anything. I think it was interesting that he did surround himself with uh, police officers, you know, his Friday morning club that he used to host at, at um, his flat in Leeds. You know, a, a, a social club of which, you know, two thirds to three quarters of the people that attended were either serving or retired police officers. Um, we know that Freemasonry is is rife within the police force. It wouldn't surprise me if he was a Mason. Um, I don't know about the occult, or you know, I didn't see anything in his in his. He didn't say anything, or he didn't. I didn't see anything in his houses or his homes that that suggested that. What about the angle at which he tilted his coffin? Well, that was very interesting. I mean, I, again, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not knowledgeable enough in in these matters to understand whether that has any significance, you know, you know, with the occult. But he said it, he wanted a better view of the sea. That was his sort of <laughs> joke. I think it's really interesting. It was concrete lined. I mean, you know, his gold coffin, I mean, it wasn't gold, it was spray-painted gold. It was it was laid to rest at an angle on a hillside in Scarborough, in his view, to overlook the sea, which is obviously quite a hard thing to do when you're dead and you're underground. Um, and you're also encased in reinforced concrete. You know, not many tombs uh, or not many graves well, not many people make that sort of precaution. He wasn't, it's not like he was buried with a ton of jewelry or loads of money or anything like that. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm not, not qualified or knowledgeable enough to really comment on those, Sean. Right. There's dozens of questions coming from the viewers. We've only got until 7 p.m. So I'll try and get through as many as possible. Just giving you a heads up so that you know we can't give really long answers. So first one is from Ian. Why do you think he got ahead in the early days of pop celebrity culture? I think he was um, Britain's first celebrity in, in many ways. Uh, he made his name, obviously, as we talked about, through playing records and, and having huge popularity for these record dances. And then he cultivated this wacky persona with dyed his hair, dyed his hair half black, half white, checkerboard. He made himself very conspicuous with his cars, with his jewellery, with his cigar. Um, and then through that, I think he really became the first celebrity, the first man who was famous for being famous rather than having any particular skill. Did you write into Jim or Fix It when you was a kid? That's from Dylan. No. Next question is from Ian. Why is his coal mining experience quite hard to pin down to a timeline? Uh, because he was very vague about it and also because the the records of the Bevin Boy miners, and I did see a question about that, the Bevin Boys were people, uh, men who were conscripted to go down the mines to, um, you know, to fuel the war effort rather than going into the uh, one of the armed forces. The All the records were lost in a fire. I do know that when he went to Downing Street for a 
uh, reception when the Bevan boys were recognised by Prime Minister Gordon Brown, he didn't really want to um, uh, spend much time with the other Bevan boy miners that were there and seemed to be very remote and um, very sort of separated from them. Wow. Next question is from Vanessa. Dan, in your opinion, how much did his PA know about his predatory behaviour and is there any indication she was involved in covering up any incidents? That's a really difficult question to answer. I did interview one of his PAs. Um, she claims that she didn't see anything um, and wasn't aware of anything, whether she is living in denial or not. Um, only she will be able to really answer that. That was my instinct, instinctual reaction that she was in denial. Um, Jake, did Savile ever drop the public persona? Uh, at times, when I was interviewing him, yeah, he, he, you know, there were t you had to wait, you had to sort of sit through stories that you'd heard many times before. You'd had to, you had to sort of wait for the cracks to appear between this very carefully built facade that he erected around himself with these stories, with this sort of with all this sort of like folklore of the miner, the, the wrestler, the DJ, the zany, the zany sort of charity fundraiser. But yes, the, the, the mask did slip at times. And what I now know is that when it did slip, it was at times that he was really worried that, that the net was closing in around him. Do you think Louis Thoreau got it to slip, but it, it kind of backfired on him? I think Louis... Louis has really wrestled with this. I mean, I, I know Louis, and I think that the first program he did with him was was incredible. You know, it it really revealed what a complete oddball this guy was, and not necessarily just this cheerful figure of fun. He was there were sides of him that were really quite unpleasant and quite distasteful, including you know the scene late at night where Jimmy Savile is up with Louis's cameraman talking about beating up time people up in his dance halls. And beating them up so you know the persona did the persona did slip and i think that louis has really wrestled with whether he should have um got to the truth but you know he was by far from being the only one who who didn't you know get to the truth while he was alive the fact of the matter is that jimmy savile on his gravestone his epitaph was it was good while it lasted he knew it was a race for him to get into that grave and unfortunately he won that race what did Savile like to talk about the most? About himself. Um, he anything that anything that sort of shone him in a, in a you know showed him in a positive light. He was somebody who was incapable of laughing at himself or being able to make fun of himself. He was a, a narcissist in that sense. So anything that burnished the reputation, any of these stories that that laid another layer of bricks in the facade that's what he likes to talk about i was surprised the reckoning covered this next question it kind of like intimated something that's happened is there any evidence of relationships with the deceased well i mean the evidence is going to be really hard to find for obvious reasons but uh you know he certainly had access to the mortuaries in Leeds General Infirmary and he talked about one of his favourite jobs being wheeling the recently deceased to the mortuary and he talked about the pride and the pleasure that that gave him, um, you know, their sort of last journey. He certainly had access to offend um, and the rumours, again, like the rumours that circulated when I was a kid, those rumours of necrophilia also were very, very prevalent. All right, next question is from Nora. Did Jimmy ever have his heart broken by a love interest? That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, he did, he did have girlfriends that he kept very much in the shadows. Whether he had ever had his heart broken, I don't know. I mean, he talked about losing his virginity in quite a sort of strange way on a train when he was about 14 you know that some older woman had sort of basically taken it from him on a train um i don't know i don't think he he always talked about relationships in the terms of brain damage he did have women that he maintained relationships with but were kept very much in the shadows because they would have 
um, counteracted or, or contradicted this this aura that he wanted to this this persona this this idea that he was a serial bachelor. I don't know. It's a very good question there. Next one is from Ian. Looking back, was he a kind of zealot character? In the background during a time of great cultural political change, yet not a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I described him as a sort of silly character. He, he, you know, the initial genesis of the book was here. How how did this guy crop up at all these pivotal moments in post-war history? How was it that he was like this sort of strange flickering flame or light that illuminated strange corners of the story of post-war Britain? He did crop up, and I think that's a really good it's a really good analogy and it's one that I used in the book because he had this remarkable ability to shapeshift and reinvent himself and to appear in the most unlikely of scenarios, whether that be, you know, in the Israeli parliament as a special friend of Israel, whether that be at Broadmoor, whether that be, you know, at Chequers, whether that be, you know, Parkhurst prison, Haute de la Garenne, Children's Home, and everywhere in between. You know, Top of the Pops, the BBC, uh, Corridors of Power. So do you think he committed crime when he was at Haute de la Garenne? I I interviewed him shortly after that story broke, and he took a phone call in that interview. And I don't know whether there's anybody actually on the end of the line, but I don't know whether it was a set piece on his part, but he... He basically purported to be on the phone call on the phone to his lawyers talking about how he was going to sue a newspaper and how much he was going to get out of them. And this was at the time that his picture had emerged surrounded by kids at Haute de, de la Garenne. And there was there was a um somebody did come forward after his death and say that they were abused by him there. I think he he again, that was something, the picture of him there, which he initially denied ever being there, despite there being photographic evidence to the contrary. And then during that conversation that lasted for about 20 minutes, I was sitting in the room. He, his eyes never left my eyes. He was looking at me throughout that conversation. It was almost to say, this is what I do. This is my policy. This is how I deal with this. And if you step outside of this, you're going to be dealt with in the same way. Wow, fascinating. Was Savile ever physically attacked uh he was physically attacked by um you know that 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 story i told about the 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 event in otley where he insisted on camping on the hillside he claimed it was all fun and games with this group of girls and they all had a wonderful time and came down tired and happy the next morning actually a group of young lads from the village who had probably heard about jimmy savile and his predilection for teenage girls had gone up the hillside and there had been uh, a fight um, you know, on the hillside. Uh, that was in the account of one of the girls who, you know, was in one of those tents that night. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in terms of being attacked elsewhere, I don't know. I mean, he 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 was a menacing sort of guy and he's, he, he surrounded himself with, with people, whether they be, you know, his security, whether those be ex-police officers or serving police officers or whether those be, you know, his sort of, his helpers, his teams, as he called them. I don't think anybody probably got close enough in later life. Could another Savile happen again in the public eye? I'd like to think not, you know, but sadly, um, lessons do not seem to be learned. I mean, whether somebody could get away with it over that period of time, you'd, you'd certainly like to think not. Do you think that if he was tried in court 10 years before his death, he would have impeached multiple high figures and that's another reason he got away with it? That's a really good question. Um, I think that, I mean, that, I mean, you know what, I've never even really thought about what that scene, how that scene would play out because he he spent his life, his life's mission was to avoid that and to create the apparatus around himself and the the concentric rings of power and influence to make sure that didn't happen. I'm sure that he could have made life very, very uncomfortable for a lot of people, ranging from the heir to the throne to, you know, the the Prime Minister Thatcher and and politicians and high-ranking civil servants and all sorts of people. 
it would have been a very very uncomfortable thing whether he was whether he would have able to whether he would have outed anybody else who had offended like him or not i don't know well there's tons more questions outstanding but we have run out of time viewers huge thank you for all your questions and most importantly huge thank you to dan for spending this time with us this evening where can people find you support you and get your books dan and we'll put all the links below the video well, the book is is called In Plain Sight: The Life and Lies of Jimmy Savile. You can you can buy it on Amazon and in most good bookshops. Uh, I don't really do social media, to be honest with you, but um, yeah, I mean, if you you know, if you I, it, the book is not you know, I, it's the, the the best piece of work I've ever done in my life. It was it took me a long time um, and it took a toll, but I do feel that it, it is the sort of forensic takedown and explanation of how he was able to. To, to get away with what he did. And the only way we can prevent that from happening again is by shining a light on what's happened in the past. So we salute your mission exposing this monster. Huge thank you for coming on, Dan. You take care. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Bye.